Good afternoon, ladies and gentlemen. It is my pleasure to welcome you to the final IPS Northern Lecture by Dr. Noreen Hazer, our 10th SR Northern Fellow for the Study of Singapore. Today, Noreen will be delivering her lecture titled, Securing Our Future, A Renewed Multilateralism. Following her lecture, Noreen will take questions from the audience in a Q&A session. The Q&A session will be chaired by Professor Chan Heng Chi, Ambassador-at-Large at the Ministry of Foreign Affairs and IPS 7 SR Northern Fellow for the Study of Singapore. Before we begin, please allow me to go over some housekeeping rules for the event. The lecture is being streamed, by, is being streamed live on Facebook. It will also be recorded and uploaded onto our IPS website and our social media platforms later. Please submit your comments and questions at any time during the lecture through the Facebook comments. For our audience members here at Shaw Foundation Alumni House, please step up to the mic over there during the Q&A session at any time during the Q&A session to ask your questions. Please be reminded to keep your mask on when asking your questions. We will try our best to answer as many questions as we can during the Q&A. For our live audience members, please also switch your mobile phones to silent mode to avoid any interruptions. We would also like to hear your views on the event. There will be a QR code and a link on the Facebook comment box at the end of the lecture, which you can click on to submit your feedback. So, without further ado, I would like to invite Dr. Nolin Hazer to begin her third and final lecture, Securing Our Future, A Renewed Multilateralism. Dr. Hazer, please. Very good afternoon, everyone. Since this is my last lecture, I would like to begin by expressing my deep appreciation to the IPS team for their exceptional support. Eunice, my research assistant, Associate Director Kaisen, Senior Executive Dewey, and all the very committed and dedicated staff at IPS working behind the scenes. Grateful thanks to Director uh, Devon, to Jadadas Devon, and the SR Narden Fellowship Committee for appointing me as the 10th SR Narden Fellow. Very special thanks to Professor Chan Heng Chi for moderating this session. Prof Chan is a national icon and a great inspiration to so many of us. Thank you, Prof Chan. Many thanks to friends and colleagues present at this hybrid event and to all participating virtually. So this final lecture is entitled, Securing Our Future, a renewed multilateralism. We went on a journey to the past and present in my first and my second lecture. My third lecture will turn our gaze to the horizon of the future. As a Danish philosopher, Kierkegaard uh, once said, Life can only be understood backwards, but it must be lived forward with an understanding of history from the standpoint of our present. We must safeguard our world and nurture the seeds of our collective future. We're living through a time every bit as momentous as that faced by our forefathers and mothers seven decades ago. Our generation is tasked with nothing less 
than the rejuvenation of the world in all aspects, natural, political, economic, social, and cultural. We must acknowledge the underlying interconnectedness of the universe, of human life, and the natural world. Not merely as a philosophical concept. We must realize this interconnectedness deep in our bones and apply this principle of interconnectedness to the very structures that govern our lived reality. At the level of international governance, we need to rejuvenate the multilateral rule-based order to secure our future. We will be defined by how we respond to this call of destiny. As we look towards the future that our children and grandchildren will inherit, we must ask, what kind of world and what kind of society we want to be? And how can we achieve it? In my first two lectures, I talked about the framework of multilateral governance that has secured our present, but now needs to be renewed and strengthened to deal with the interlocking disruptions that threaten our future. What is to be done? To secure our future requires an awareness that trust and solidarity the rope that holds society together from the local to the global is unraveling. We are connected more than ever by our vulnerability and the need to value our future differently. To have the future we want, we must repair, restore, and revalue. Repair what has been broken, trust and solidarity. Restore what has been weakened, protection and dignity. Revalue what has been ignored, caring for each other and the planet. And this must be done globally through multilateral governance and locally by our countries, corporations and alliances of people, especially the young, who are empowered by technology to build a transnational community based on shared values and shared purpose to magnify the good and diminish the bad. So let's look at the foundation of our global future. And this is clearly outlined in the Our Common Agenda, the report by the UN Secretary General, Antonio Guterres. Now leaders of the world identified 12 areas for urgent action and requested the Secretary General to report back to the General Assembly with recommendations to advance our common agenda and to respond to current and future challenges. Now, I will not touch on all the 12 areas, but I will highlight what I see in our common agenda as the three most important ways to rebuild the foundation of our global future. A renewed social contract, governance of our global commons and global public goods, and an inclusive, network, effective multilateralism. Now, our common agenda places trust and solidarity at its core to allow the community of nations to work together again to achieve common goals. 
the UN Secretary General has urgently called for a renewed social contract built on three foundations that are necessary for the 21st century. Trust, inclusion, protection and participation, valuing and measuring what matters to people and the planet. The renewed social contract seeks to secure a future where trust is rebuilt as people see results reflected in their daily life, confident that the system is working for them. For this to happen, global and national systems must deliver what people need most. It is vital that updated governance arrangements deliver better public goods and usher in a new era of universal social protection, health coverage, education, skills, decent work and housing, as well as universal access to the internet by 2030 as a basic human right. Now, a vibrant social contract is a guarantee. It guarantees the condition for people to live a decent life by building the foundations for social sustainability and social security, especially inclusion, protection, and participation for communities left behind. Measuring and valuing what matters to people and the planet requires broad shifts in what prosperity and progress means, capturing the human and the environmental destruction of some business activities, and changing our economic models to value the systems that sustain life and well-being. It must also find ways to validate the care and the informal economy done by women and invest in quality paid care as part of essential public services and social protection arrangements. Now, underpinning the social contract is the centrality of human rights. Human rights are vital problem-solving tools that safeguard lives and livelihoods and critical to sustaining peace as they prevent grievances from arising. They serve the whole of society, not just the individual. To implement the renewed social contract requires a whole-of-society approach, as many more actors are needed to address increasingly complex and interconnected problems. Countries are encouraged to conduct inclusive and meaningful national consultations so that citizens have a say in envisioning their country's future. The, to complement the renewed social contract, our common agenda calls for a new global deal to enhance the governance of the global commons and global public goods. Now, what are the global commons? And these refer to natural or cultural resources that are shared and benefit all. They include the oceans, the polar regions, the, our atmosphere and outer space. Public goods are understood to be those goods and services provided to and benefiting society. So what are they? 
So certain public goods are global in nature and they cannot be adequately provided by any one state acting alone and they concern the welfare of the whole of humanity. So these include global public health, the global economy, a healthy planet, peace and security, and our digital commons. Having addressed global public health and a healthy planet in my lecture too, today I will just focus on the global economy, peace and security, and the digital commons. So, a global economy that works for all, that is sustainable and equitable, has characteristics of a global public good. Achieving this new dynamic for the global economy means rethinking the interdependence between the economy, people, and planet. Strong and sustainable businesses are built on global values, including human and labor rights, environmental sustainability, and fighting corruption. Increasingly, global businesses are under pressure to find drivers of growth that do not damage our social fabric, cultural heritage, nor the environment for future generations. In fact, environment, social and governance, or what is commonly called the SDGs, are used today as criteria for socially responsible investing. In the wake of the global economic crises and the steady streams of corporate scandals, crises of corporate governance have pushed ESG from the margins to the boardrooms of corporations, integrated into corporate management and operations. Coordinated action by the business community to align their business practices with global goals, including the Paris Climate Agreement and the Sustainable Development Goals, is crucial. World leaders and civil society have expressed their belief that responsible business practices will be critical to restore public trust and in the global financial and economic system. Now, stronger global cooperation to promote financial integrity by addressing tax evasion and aggressive tax avoidance, as well as illicit financial flows, is long overdue. Measures to increase fairness such as a minimum corporate global tax and solidarity tax will be a clear signal that private enterprises and the very wealthy who benefit most from the current economic arrangements must contribute to national and global public goods. Let me now turn to peace and security. Now, peace is a principal global public good that the United Nations was established to deliver. Today's risks to collective peace and security are growing, and traditional forms of conflict prevention, management, and resolution are ill-suited to address the emerging dangers. This includes conflicts 
involving transnational criminal networks, new actors associated with terrorism, rapidly evolving weapon technologies, and a willingness of regional actors to participate actively in wars. New technologies have placed the capacity to disrupt global stability in the hands of many more actors. Long-standing agreements on nuclear weapons and other weapons of mass destruction are increasingly fragile as trust among major powers continue to erode. The world is moving closer to the brim of inequality where the risks we face are no longer managed effectively through the systems we have. The UN Secretary General has set out a new agenda for peace. To protect and manage the global public good of peace, we need a peace continuum based on a better understanding of the underlying drivers and systems of influence that are generating conflict and a renewed effort to agree on more effective collective security responses and a meaningful set of steps to manage emerging risks. And this means the importance of investing in prevention and building the infrastructure of peace, ensuring adequate social spending, decent work and development assistance to address root causes of conflict and upholding human rights. It means reducing strategic risks by effective control of conventional weapons and regulations of new weapons of technology, banning cyber attacks on civilian infrastructure, putting in place measures to de-escalate cyber-related risks, and establishing internationally agreed limits on lethal autonomous weapon systems. It requires deepening support for regional capacities, including security arrangements and joint peace-building operations to address complex peace and security challenges. The peace agenda also calls for a multi-stakeholder effort to reduce violence significantly worldwide and in all its forms, including against women and girls, building on the movement to half global violence by 2030. Let me turn to my third public, uh, uh, global public good. Our world is changing beyond recognition as we move from the industrial age to the hyper-connected digital age. The internet has provided access to information for billions fostering co collaboration, connection, and mobilization for sustainable development. It is a global public good that should benefit everyone, everywhere. Today, however, the potential harms of the digital domain risk overshadowing its benefits. Governance at the national and global levels has not kept pace with the inherently informal and decentralized nature of the internet, which is dominated by commercial interests. Serious and urgent ethical, 
social and regulatory questions confront us, including the lack of accountability in cyberspace and the emergence of large technology companies as geopolitical actors. At the same time, there is gender bias, as women do not have an equal role in designing digital technologies and algorithms. Meanwhile, digital harassment has targeted women and girls and pushed many women out of the public conversation. There's also real concern over the use of digital surveillance and manipulation to influence behavior and control populations. To protect the online space and strengthen its governance, the UN will soon be organizing a multi-stakeholder digital technology track in preparation for the summit of the future in 2030 to agree on a global digital compact. This will outline shared principles for an open, free and secure digital future for all. And complex digital issues could be addressed, including reaffirming the fundamental commitment to connecting the unconnected, avoiding the fragmentation of the internet, providing people with options on how their data is used, the application of human rights online, and promoting a trustworthy internet by introducing accountability criteria for discrimination and misleading content. More broadly, the compact could also promote the regulation of AI to ensure that it is aligned with shared global goals. Our successes in finding solutions to the interlinked problems we face hinges on our ability to anticipate prevent, prepare for major risks to come. And these risks are now increasingly global, some even existential, as the nuclear age has given humanity the power to bring about its own extinction. Continued technological advances, accelerating climate change, transnational security threats, and new pandemics mean that the livelihood or the likelihood of global catastrophe is present on multiple fronts. The UN Secretary General has put a revitalized prevention agenda front and center to all that we do. Being prepared to prevent and respond to these risks is an essential counterpoint to better managing the global commons and global public goods. These are all actions that the UN will be discussing with member states in close consultation with other relevant stakeholders at the Summit of the Future in 2023 during the 78th UN General Assembly. Now, the expected outcome is agreement on the renewed social contract an identification of those global commons or public goods that may require renewed commitments and governance. Now, how is all this to be done? Let me focus on what the world needs. The world has changed 
since the UN was founded. And so must multilateral governance to be effective. When the UN Charter was adopted and developed, multilateralism meant cooperation among 51 member states with the United States as the center of power. Today, there are 193 member states and a shift in global power from west to east. The context for collective action has evolved over the past seven decades with a broad range of state and non-state actors participating in global affairs. There is a diffusion of power extending to a whole host of networks and institutions that inhabit the fabric of global society. Today, we are witnessing the growing power of multinational cooperations, along with ultra-rich individuals. There are thousands of non-governmental organizations, networks, and citizens' movements using social media to extend their reach and amplify the voice of citizens and civil society. At the same time, in our hyper-connected world, what happens in one nation can impact all nations. Any effort to improve our governance of the global commons and public goods and to manage risks must navigate this complexity and seek explicitly to incorporate new approaches where they're likely to deliver better outcomes. What might this mean in practice? It means all stakeholders, all global stakeholders, realizing that solidarity is self-interest and taking greater collective responsibility for managing the global commons and global public goods and the great disruptions of the 21st century. These are issues that no country can address alone. They require the concerted resolve of all stakeholders working together, governments, cities, corporations, civil society, and even private citizens. While the UN alone cannot address the numerous challenges confronting humanity, especially in a complex and networked world, it is still the key institution available for solving the problems that matter most. The UN has the legitimacy and the universal convening power that gives all 193 member states an equal voice. Increasingly joined by representatives from the private sector civil society and academia. It has a unique role in safeguarding global values, ethics and norms, as well as a global presence and technical expertise. However, the UN of the 20th century must change into the UN of the 21st century to become a reliable guardian for our future acting on behalf of both the present and succeeding generation. It has to move from the 20th century to the 21st century. Now, an improved multilateral governance 
focuses on protecting our global commons and delivering critical public goods, as well as being prepared to respond to major risks in a more networked and inclusive world by improving collaboration and strategic engagement with other actors. Networked and inclusive multilateralism suggests a paradigm shift, a paradigm shift from the state-centric international world order to one where married actors beyond nation-states, especially beyond the traditional major powers, can collaborate and share and implement solutions to complex problems. They all emphasized the need for alliances between state and non-state actors, or smart coalition to respond as a people-centered and people-driven multilateralism to transnational challenges, calling for a stronger sense of global community, solidarity, and responsibility. Multilateralism that is more network draws together existing institutional capacities, overcoming fragmentation to ensure all are working together towards a common goal. It solves problems by drawing on the capacities and hearing the voices of all relevant actors rather than being driven by mandates or institutions alone. In a network world, the UN is an important convener, a place to build consensus around priorities and strategies, and as a platform for collective action and delivery. It is the space to bring together decision makers with the accountability and authoritativeness associated with intergovernmental processes to support networked approaches. It must do this better and more often. What is the meaning of inclusive multilateralism? Inclusive multilateralism is marked by a genuine possibility for states from, from all regions and of all sizes to engage in collective action, including a stronger voice for developing countries in global decision-making. It also means the inclusion of a diverse range of voices beyond states. In addition to intergovernmental organizations, this can include parliaments, sub-national authorities like our cities and local government, civil society, faith-based organizations, universities, trade unions, the private sector, and grassroots movements including those led by women and young people. This vision recognizes that state remains central to our collective ability to meet global challenges and have unique responsibilities in the multilateral system, while also acknowledging that solutions increasingly depend on the private sector and non-state actors who should be part of the deliberations that are absolutely critical and be accountable for their commitments. Ultimately, what matters is results. 
For the UN to be more effective, it needs to be nimble and dynamic, able to respond to volatile situations and new emergencies. There is no way to anticipate which extreme risk events will come next. It might be another pandemic, a new war, a biological attack, a cyber attack on critical infrastructure, technological development gone away, and unconstrained by ethical and ethical and regulatory frameworks. The Secretary General has proposed the establishment of an emergency platform to respond to complex global crises. The platform will be triggered automatically in crises of significant scale and magnitude, regardless of the type or nature of the crisis involved. Once activated, it will bring together leaders from member states, the UN system, key country groupings, international financial institutions, regional bodies, civil society, the private sector, subjects, specific industries, and other experts. The platform would allow the convening role of the Secretary General to be maximized in the face of crises with global reach. And this is a new way of working. A new multilateral governance that is more networked, inclusive and effective will require every nation to rethink how we grow our economy, mediate and negotiate our differences, share our wealth, nurture our environment, and care for the well-being of our population. It is essential to engage the private sector to shift the needle significantly on critical challenges, inclusion and accountability. Arrangements where the private sector commits to middle to business models that supports inclusion, empowerment, human rights, and sustainable development, and investments that take into account the ESG factors are important in this regard. So what might these new alliances look like in practice? And what kind of impact can they actually have? that makes the world a slightly different place. The good news is that there are several innovative and forward-looking public-private partnerships that are already addressing critical challenges while creating opportunities and delivering dividends for communities. I'll just share with you just one example. And this is the Transform Initiative, which is a social enterprise supported uh, uh, platform created by Kayuni Lever and the UK Foreign Commonwealth and Development Office, which aims to help 100 million people in Sub-Saharan Africa and South Asia gain access to products and services that improve health, livelihoods, the, the environment and well-being by 2025. Transform works to accelerate community enterprises, blending funding and support
to deliver market-based solutions to the world's biggest development challenges. So far, Transform has reached around 4 million people from low-income communities in 13 countries around the world. With the engagement of an impressive network of partners, including Microsoft, MasterCard, and LinkedIn, Transform has supported 56 impact enterprise projects. These are the social impact projects, including a mobile e-commerce platform in Rwanda, a women and maternal health information service in Nigeria, and affordable water and sanitation providers in Bangladesh and India. One project which I like very much is called the Dharma Life in India. And this provided mentoring and support to a network of over 16,000 rural women to become rural level entrepreneurs to facilitate access to vital information, goods and services to vulnerable communities during the COVID-19 pandemic, transforming them into a women-led, grassroots crisis response force that delivers to the last mile. We need to learn from such innovations and the concrete impact they can make. Revitalized relationships and alliances for inclusive and sustainable development can harness the ideas and talents of the public, private, civil society, faith groups and citizens everywhere, uniting around problems and generating solutions to secure our common future. However, they can only be built if they are based on shared values, visions and goals on managing global public risks and long-term governance of the global commons and delivery of global public goods. These are not abstract concepts. They lie at the very heart of the community, be it at the local, national, or international level. Let me turn to Singapore. Can it be an epicenter of multilateralism, especially of the new multilateralism? There are many ways in which Singapore can become an epicenter of multilateralism, securing its future by contributing to the larger well-being of people and the planet. Now, let me just reflect on three. A hub for global public health, a digital hub for cybersecurity, a financial hub for an inclusive and sustainable future. Singapore has played an important role in global health security during the COVID-19 pandemic, as I have shared in my lecture too. It can now be more ambitious and become a hub for global public health in three ways. Linking public health to environmental health, improving health equity in healthcare delivery, and taking advantage of frontier healthcare technology. Singapore can use the Sustainable Development Goal paradigm to take leadership and become a multilateral hub for global public health 
one that understands the social and environmental determinants of health to improve the conditions and quality of people's daily life. It means understanding that every sector is a health sector, that an empowered society is a healthy society, and just having medical care is not enough. Seen through the prism of sustainable development, health is not the absence of illness, but the presence of wellness linked to the wellness of our ecological world and the quality of our economic system and society. The 2030 Agenda for Sustainable Development is a development approach that integrates our economy, society and ecology to build resilience into the fabric of how communities function, empowering people to negotiate life. It balances the three dimensions of sustainable development, the economic, social and environmental, and regards them as integrated and interlinked in addressing new risks, vulnerabilities and opportunities. It is also about partnership for change. And Singapore has already the experience of building a community of collaborators from government, local leaders, civil society, businesses and academia to address various development agendas. Singapore is already tracking its health systems intervention and how healthcare is delivered. New models of care in Singapore are moving from services that fo focus solely on treatment for people who are already ill, towards services that work to improve the conditions in which people live and work. Approaches that focus on prevention and improving health equity will look quite different to those that focus on improving average population health, as they are responsive to communities with the greatest level of need and people with the highest risk of poor health. And this requires health sector community collaboration for service delivery, access and affordability of treatment and ways of addressing the social determinants of health to empower more people economically and socially to live healthy lives. In fact, I had the opportunity to experience our healthcare services that support women who are the older old in low-income communities. From the Agency of the Integrated Care to the St. Hilda's Community Services to the Home Nursing Foundation, the nurses, the physiotherapists, the coordinators, and the person in charge work as a seamless collective. I was impressed with the support, the training and equipment available for severely disabled elders in an old HDB estate with a large aging population, restoring dignity to the vulnerable. Now, this is an example of an innovation in community health governance that could be upscaled. Now, to become a hub for global public health, Singapore can further build on its human capacity and take advantage of innovation and frontier technology in healthcare. 
as healthcare goes can digital, more healthcare will be delivered through smartphones. And as mobile health or M health, as it's called, gets more popular, we will be using more digital technology, such as cheaper sensors, robotics, drones, to reach people and deliver medicine to remote areas in Asia. And I hope to vulnerable communities, including the displaced and the refugees. We have one of the largest refugee camps in Asia. In its aim to be a digital hub of the future, Singapore can become a locally rooted global node that builds global public health governance and alliances that connect people and healthcare system seamlessly through digital technology. Another way in which Singapore can become an epicenter of multilateralism is becoming a hub for global cybersecurity. Asia-Pacific is predicted to become the leading region in terms of 5G technology adoption with some 1.2 billion users that would account for 65% of global 5G users by 2024. With Singapore's lead, ASEAN has also launched the ASEAN Smart Cities Network in 2018 to move ASEAN towards smart and sustainable urban development using digital technology. While the adoption of 5G will enable wider implementation of the Internet of Things and robotics, it will also broaden the cyber attack surface. Critical infrastructure in Asia has already experienced multiple cyber attacks. Only a few ASEAN member states have issued regulations and guidelines to address operational technology or what is called OT, cybersecurity, to protect power stations, transport networks, and smart city applications. Because of differing levels of maturity for OT security policy across the Asia-Pacific region, there is a need for industry groups to take a lead in developing and harmonizing best practices in cybersecurity. Now, to prepare for this section of the lecture, I asked the Director of Security Services of IBM for key recommendations, and these are some of her recommendations. Singapore should focus on homegrown cybersecurity talent. Have a mass drive of public awareness campaigns to address the weakest links, humans, and have a mandatory disclosure of cybersecurity ratings by the private sector. I also visited the Global Cybersecurity Operations of Banking Group City, and I'm very pleased that the managing director and the team are here today. And did I learn a lot? Thank you. Now, they have provided guidance on policy development in individual countries to address specific national or industrial need. During their briefing, I asked them to identify the critical gaps that need to be addressed for Singapore to become the digital hub 
for global cybersecurity. They identified three. First, cybersecurity must be a priority on the national agenda. The future of growth and technology development in Singapore and the region requires cooperation and recognition that the IT threat landscape has expanded. The threat landscape now includes personal mobile devices used for work, cloud technology, Internet of Things technologies, and the connected OT devices. OT is critical not just for heavy industries, but today's highly connected smart cities. And second, they stress that there is urgent need to build a pipeline of expertise in cybersecurity. And this requires education to demystify cybersecurity and an understanding that a range of expertise beyond the technological aspects is required for this sector to succeed. And third, as with most security infrastructure, there is a significant gender gap in cybersecurity. In Asia-Pacific, women account for less than 10% of the cybersecurity workforce. And this gap in women's participation has resulted in the lack of gender perspective in forming cybersecurity and the development of frameworks that fail to identify and respond to cyber threats faced by women and girls. Now, as countries seek to build a secure and resilient cyberspace, cybersecurity is unfortunately still a male-dominated field in the world, leaving out the experiences and perspectives of half the world's population. Now, in June this year, I was invited by the government of the Republic of Korea and the Organization for Security and Cooperation in Europe, also known as OSCE, their transnational threat department to address the third interregional conference on cyber ICT security, and they asked me to address the issue of women in cyber policy. I stress three points. First, as we improve cybersecurity frameworks, we need to address the digital harm to women and girls. A good example of digital harm to women and girls is personal security and violence against women. Evidence shows that with COVID-19 lockdown, online misogamy, hate speech, revenge porn, deep fake, and the spread of misinformation has grown. Second, with an increase in working from unsecured networks at home, there has been an increase in cyber crimes. Amidst the pandemic, there has been a 600% increase in malicious emails with cyber attacks on ICTs occurring every 39 seconds. Fraudulent websites designated to acquire individuals' personal information that mimic the names of governments, criminal networks operating in the dark web, human traffickers and smugglers taking advantage of the sudden and prolonged increase of women and girls on the on kind of online. Third, I stress that there are several instruments and frameworks 
that policymakers can draw from when seeking to advance a gender perspective within multilateral cybersecurity, such as the UN Security Council Resolution 1325 on Women, Peace and Security, the Beijing Platform for Action, and CEDAW. Now, if more women are encouraged to understand cybersecurity, these instruments could be used to develop and strengthen gender-inclusive cybersecurity laws, policies, and practices that respect the rights of women and girls and respond to their cybersecurity needs. The UN actually considers Singapore to be an emerging global leader in the field of cybersecurity, actively contributing to the international consensus-driven standards. In 2020, Singapore and the UN agreed to develop a checklist with steps for countries to implement the 11 norms that are contained in the UN report on responsible state behavior in cyberspace. A gender analysis of these norms could provide guidelines for a more gender-aware approach to their implementation and accelerate efforts to eliminate harassment and crimes in the cyber world. In so doing, Singapore could become not only a digital hub for global cybersecurity, but a digital hub with a human face. The third area that I would be looking at is as Singapore as a hub for a sustainable future. How we deal with climate change and make the transition to a net zero carbon society will define our future. ESG values are now becoming a prerequisite to create business value. It is about how successful businesses make their money, not how they spend it once it's made. Successful businesses in their enlightened self-interest are changing their strategy to incorporate a triple bottom line to create both value and values to sustain their dynamism, people, planet, profit. According to a survey by Morgan Stanley, 90% of the millennial high net, uh, net worth investors want to tailor their investment to their personal values. Investing in companies with good ESG track records. Now, as a leading wealth management hub, Singapore can play a strong role in wealth planning solutions that support sustainable development in Asia. Singapore has much at stake in global efforts to mitigate climate risks and with increasing threats of climate change. Singapore's sustainability agenda has taken on added urgency and broader dimensions. The country is actively developing strategies to reduce carbon emissions, becoming the first country in Southeast Asia to introduce a carbon tax. It is now positioning itself as a carbon service hub to complement Asia's decarbonization efforts. Now, there is good potential for Southeast Asia to generate carbon credits, and Singapore can play a role 
in the financing of projects that reduce or remove emissions through these credits. The immense financing need to build a greener world can only be met through a combination of public and private capital. And Singapore is also setting itself up as the leading center for green finance and markets to facilitate Asia's transition to a sustainable future. It is promoting sustainability bonds and loans and collaborating with international partners to develop a common green taxonomy. It is also building knowledge and capabilities in sustainable finance that has recently launched and has recently launched the Singapore Green Finance Centre. I was pleased to learn of all these initiatives and more at the inaugural Singapore Sustainable Investing and Financing Conference that was organised by the Tamasic Holdings in partnership with BlackRock and the IFC. To ensure that all financial flows are consistent with a pathway towards low greenhouse gas emissions and climate resilient development, the UN Secretary General has encouraged countries to set a carbon price and has asked the G20 to consider the IMF proposal to create an international carbon price floor. All financial actors must also set verifiable targets that cover the entire portfolio to shift them from high emission sectors to the climate resilient and net zero economy, along with timelines to implement their pledges. Priority must be given to reducing carbon emissions across the entire value chain and hold the highest standards of environmental integrity. As I conclude, we, as we set our sights on the future, let us be mindful of the human condition and realities of our time. The political philosopher Hannah Aran, writing after the, the devastation of World War II, offered her vision of the future. Never has our future been more unpredictable. Never have we depended so much on political forces that cannot be trusted to follow the rules of common sense and self-interest. Forces that look like sheer insanity if judged by the standards of other centuries. As these lectures have shown, our world is now at a similar critical juncture where we must act as a true global community for the sake of our collective future. Singapore must not only be part of this global community, but we must also lead, lead the way with sincerity and solidarity. What type of nation can we become as we secure our future as a multilateral epicenter for the well-being of people and planet? For me, Singapore can become a locally rooted nation with strong principles aligned with multilateral governance. 
with a secure national core, but increasingly comfortable with being a global citizen with the rights and responsibilities of what that entails. We could move from being identified as a little red dot to a beam of smart and compassionate power regionally and globally, where our citizens can be counted, counted on to revitalize multilateral governance. That is a future worth securing. Today is Human Rights Day. So I would like to end my third lecture by re returning to the beginning of our multilateral journey. Our forefathers and mothers vanquished the demons of the past, bequeathing to us a better world, and our generation was the main beneficiary. We are where we are today because of the foundation laid by the generation before us. In the words of Mahatma Gandhi, the future depends on what you do today. It is now our turn our turn to fully comprehend and be a driving force to, to implement our common agenda, to rebuild multilateral governance. If we succeed, it will be our turn. Our turn to hear our children tell the story of how their parents' generation addressed the great disruptions, healed the wounds of division, calm the storms of anger, and secure the future where all children can flourish. I hope that these three lectures will ignite a national conversation towards envisioning a promising future, a future that celebrates the human spirit, where every person can live in freedom and dignity, where we dare to imagine and co-create our communities and where our young can dream and awaken with the light of dawn shining brightly in their eyes. I thank you. Thank you, Nolin. For those watching the lecture on Facebook, Please submit your comments and questions through the Facebook comment box. For our audience members here, please step up to the mic to ask your questions. May I now invite Professor Chan Heng Chi to start the Q&A session. Well, thank you. Oops. <laughs> Let me take this off. Mm. Right. Well, Nolin, thank you very much for a very uplifting and wide-ranging speech. You know, you have laid out the a very comprehensive way and the areas in which we have to address if we are going to secure our future and to look at what a new multilateralism may look like. You've even touched on some areas for Singapore to take on uh, if we want to be at the center, epicenter, as you say, of multilateralism. Now, I'm a political scientist, so I would like to put in a reality check. Mm -hmm. You know, I like your uplifting values and statements, 
But let me say this. I noticed you never mentioned, you know, P5, the big players, the big powers in your entire speech. I was in the United Nations from 1989 to 1991. And I saw how at the end of the Cold War, when P5, the big powers, stopped fighting each other and they could come together, how much could be done? Development, transnational issues, peacekeeping, and so on. So I ask myself now, the United States and China's relationship at, is at its lowest point. Mm -hmm. How do you think you could get your new multilateralism when your two members of P5 and perhaps more, mm -hmm. they are beginning to form alignments mm -hmm. and coalitions and how do we progress forward? Mm -hmm. First of all, uh, Prof Chan, thank you so much for moderating this session. It's such an honor to have you uh, with me this afternoon. You asked a very important question, and indeed, uh, there was a time of great promise, especially after the second, after the end of the Cold War. In fact, there was a whole series of UN conferences, uh, starting with the Summit of Children, and I know that some of the people from the Children's Society are here. Uh, there was a, a conferences on uh, environment, on human rights, on population, and so on. And it was a time of great hope, a great hope and great promise. But unfortunately, it did not last. And uh, the reason why uh, multilateral governance has been weakened is precisely because it has been, in a way, weakened because the superpowers cannot come together. Now. The thing is, we can continue along that line, but it's extremely dangerous. Mm -hmm. And I think that it is also in the, the realization of the superpowers that if we want to have a stable world where people can function independent of what your ideological framework happens to be or your normative framework, they have to find a way of working together. So I think we have to differentiate when they can come together, and so in other words, where can they cooperate? And, you, and we have seen that, in fact, there are many, some attempts to at least cooperate in the area of the climate agenda. Uh, there are other areas where they can compete, and there's nothing wrong with healthy competition. But there are other areas where there's huge contestation, and they're never going to be too old to agree. But I don't think that the new multilateralism, the way it is cast, is solely dependent on the superpowers. Uh, and, and this is because, as I mentioned, there is a diverse set of power at play. And even when, for example, uh, when uh, under the previous regime, when the, the US uh, did not agree or, or stepped out of the, uh, the, the Paris Agreement, you still find the, the local governors going ahead with it, yes. many of the corporations going ahead with it. So in a sense, power is more diverse, and it doesn't have to be uh, always uh, focused on the superpowers taking a decision. Many things can still happen, and I think that that provides that kind of space that is extremely helpful. So uh, again, I think that we will have to navigate this, 
And I honestly think that because there are also a coalition of other member states, uh, not just uh, the superpowers, but even, I mean, we're talking about Singapore in my second lecture of the, of the uh, three Gs and the uh, force, the, the, the forum of small island states, but that's just one. But the G20 and so on. So there are different spaces. And I think that that's what is so exciting uh, about this because it can actually happen. Yeah. And, uh, and, and it's not the, the 20th century UN where everything is, is dependent on uh, member states to take decisions. Those who are, can take decisions in different combinations would just go, go forward. So that's my hopeful answer. Thank you, Nodine. I'd like to take this a little further. Mm -hmm. No, we do understand the Secretary General now in moving on to his Summit of the Future, mm -hmm. his common agenda, mm -hmm. is really trying to envision a new a UN 2.0, mm -hmm. which is not the same as a UN 1.0. Mm -hmm. And this is a new multilateralism, mm -hmm. more inclusive mm -hmm. and more networked. Mm -hmm. You use that word a lot in your mm -hmm. lecture. And being new networked, you bring in, you know, corporations, civil societies, individuals, young people, mm -hmm. everyone. Mm -hmm. And I think we are moving in that way. Mm -hmm. We are. Mm -hmm. But uh, let me put it this way too. And this is my second question. I think the UN, forgive me for saying this, is more suited to deal with issues of development and humanitarian crises mm -hmm. than it is in dealing with peace and security. Mm -hmm. Serious peace and security is really an issue where when the players, the big boys, P5, they are the ones who usually, you know, have their disputes. Mm -hmm. If they are ready, or proxies, mm -hmm. if they are ready, mm -hmm. then I think things will be done. Mm -hmm. But it's very difficult for the UN. But the UN is very important, indispensable mm -hmm. in peace and security issues by dealing with women and children in war, mm -hmm. with refugees. So uh, I wonder if you agree with my very, uh, shall we say, hard view yeah. of the work of the UN. Mm -hmm. Thank you, Prof. Shan. You know, um, for me, I, you know, the first thing that the Secretary General did when he came, this is his second term, but he, even at the time uh, during his first term, he talked about prevention, the, the need to have a prevention agenda. Because whatever it is, whoever starts the war, be it, you know, the big powers or whatever, Nobody knows how to solve it. We actually, unfortunately, today, we have, can you imagine, a displaced population, forced displacement of 84 million people stuck with nowhere to go. And also because of the protectionism and all that. So we have um, that some of the, the wars have been going on forever. And, and nobody knows how to solve these wars. And, it's, and I don't think that if the UN is out of it, that it will be better. In fact, it could even be worse. I, I, in fact, the, 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 the fact that what the Secretary General has also done is to keep focusing that for heaven's sake, can we build the infrastructure of peace, start building the infrastructure of peace. And I myself, I, mean, I was involved with um, 
developing the uh, Security Council Resolution 1325. And even at that time, I spoke to the P5, to, the, to their superpowers, and I basically said, your approach to peace and security, unfortunately, is just a military approach. Mm -hmm. And you get the warlords to the table. But you have all the peace builders, and you also have different perspectives coming out that needs to be taken into account. You, are, you do not have an, an inclusive peace process. And what you really need to sustain peace, because when we look at the, at the countries that came back regularly onto the Security Council agenda, once every five years, even after they think they have sorted the problem, it reappears again. And that's because the foundation of peace has not been built. And the foundation of peace, unfortunately, is to look at the root causes. And the root causes very often is economic, is political exclusion, is governance issues, is corruption, is breakdown of trust, is no solidarity, is a tearing of the social fabric. So as long as you have that, no, no one, including the superpowers, will be able to, to kind of address that. So I think this is a collective agenda, Prof Chan. It's a very serious agenda, and I am absolutely concerned that at the rate we are going, the weapons that we have are not under any regulatory framework and can be absolutely dangerous. And we have already seen that, where civilian infrastructure, even hospitals are bombed. There's no protection. The humanitarian law has been violated. So it's a very sad state and, and, and uh, is a very dangerous state. And, and it is cr absolutely critical for the superpowers and many of us to come together uh, to be able to have this kind of conversation. So thank you for raising these no, issues. No, I am fully in agreement with you. We are reaching a very critical mm -hmm. stage, you know, mm -hmm. in uh, the life of mankind. Mm -hmm. And uh, if we carry on this way, mm -hmm. you know, where would it lead us? Mm -hmm. I'm also aware, thinking through, and I have a few questions, you mm -hmm. know, once I take in the audience mm -hmm. questions, on about how you actually move things. I fully agree with you, you cannot solve, mm -hmm. you know, violence, strife, war, mm -hmm. without going to the root cause. Mm -hmm. How do you get to that? So yeah. I think that's why a lot of the leaders think the easiest way is to add more weapons, add yeah. more weapons, which, yeah. as you point out, is not really the solution. Mm -hmm. but, and it's, the question is, we know what we have to do, but how do you do it and who moves it? Who moves to get things done? Mm -hmm, mm -hmm. You know, and how, what coalitions do you mm -hmm. build? Mm -hmm. uh, I'm going to ask you a question from the audience. It's a bit of a deviation, but important. And it is this. Um, it comes from Amor, oh love. <laughs> yeah? What is your take on the decoupling of the United States and China with the recent boycott of the Winter Olympics. Yeah. How do you, would it affect multilateralism? Uh, Winter Olympics and multilateralism, is it going to put a stop to multilateralism? Is it going to be a drawback? Well, I think that uh, there are certain areas, you know, where there will be contestation and each uh, country can, you know, uh, decide how they want to deal with uh, areas that that they 
they disagree, but that's not really uh, a multilateral uh, issue uh, if, they, if they boycott something. Uh, it is a bilateral issue. Uh, but uh, I think that uh, when it comes to multilateralism, again, I think it is abs absolutely critical that all, because we want, there are 193 countries, and uh, multilateral governance involves having all the countries together deciding and you know being involved with global decision making and sometimes especially in the the UN it, it you are lucky if uh, there is consensus that is that brings you to a higher level normally it's consensus that brings you to a lower level but also uh, there are areas in which you will need to vote and then uh, there are also uh, areas uh, where there are, I would say, uh, innovative ways of addressing hard issues. You just throw it down and ex kick it down the road. Yeah, exactly. <laughs> so I think uh, people are, the, the most important thing is that nobody wants to walk the road of breakdown. Nobody. Mm -hmm. uh, so everyone, eventually, they will have to manage their, their, their differences. Uh, they will have to take it very seriously because the threats are so real. And this time round, unfortunately, we may not survive if there is the type of third world war that I think we may experience. And therefore, I think there is, there's wisdom in people, basically. At least I hope there is a lot of wisdom, unless you have a crazy uh, a person in charge of the code of, for, for the nuclear war. But I think that there are enough very good people and enough wisdom to know how to manage differences. We are living in a very divided world, extremely divided. And I'm not surprised at the tensions and, and the kind of division. But whatever it is, we have to find ways of not allowing the threads to just break apart. That's why you know, I talked about the rope I didn't even want to talk, use the word threads, but we are actually at the level of threads. We have to make sure that the rope that's keeping us together do not unravel, because it's going to be extremely hard to weave back the social fabric that has brought us here. And I think our children, I mean, honestly, I think our children, the youth, they, I mean, you know, when I, I, um, was involved with the Women, Peace and Security agenda, uh, the youth eventually decided that was a fantastic way to go. So now there is a youth uh, peace and security mm -hmm. agenda and they are going to take this on. Right. So hopefully I wish them luck. Yeah. Uh, in fact, ASEAN uh, will be uh, hosting them as well. So I think uh, there could be new thinking, I hope, uh, to, uh, and, and how to navigate this very complicated uh, landmine, if you like. Right. Now, there's another question from the audience, and is Patrick Manguan. And his question is, you mentioned in your lecture the 12 areas of action that were identified by leaders for the UNSG report. Mm -hmm. One of these areas of action is to upgrade the United Nations. Mm -hmm. How do you think that would be achieved? Mm -hmm. And how would an upgraded UN look like? Mm -hmm. Well, I think I tried to answer it uh, in the sense that uh, what I said 
was that um, it will be a more network-inclusive uh, UN. And in fact, uh, the, the summit uh, of the future in 2023, uh, uh, what the SG is doing now is to actually get uh, uh, groups of former heads of states and all that to work through some of these very critical issues and to come up uh, with thoughts on what he has recommended. For example, you know, he is thinking of turning the trusteeship uh, council into a place where uh, other stakeholders can, can come in so the youth can participate in it, uh, civil, uh, civil society, the corporations and so on. So it's basically expanding uh, mm -hmm. who would be involved with uh, discussions on critical issues and organizing things around key problems and looking at who would have solutions and really going beyond just nation states. Uh, nation states would play, as I mentioned in my speech, a very critical role because you, you, it gives you authority, it provides uh, the convening power, it, it gives legitimacy. But at the same time, I think our states are, are on their own realize that they cannot do everything alone. And the fact that uh, currently you have a dispersed network of power, that even at the local and regional level, means that we are looking at new ways of solving problems. Thank you, Nodi. Now, you have 10 minutes left, so I would like to get a couple of questions. Unless uh, I'm turning to the hall, are there people here who would like to stand up and ask a question? Yes, Simon. Nolin, Simon Tse. May I ask you uh, two very so bottom line questions. If I'm a, if you could grab one of our 40 leaders and he said, I like what you're saying, I do, um, um, but I'm not 40 leader. What should I do next? What would your sort of uh, pithy uh, uh, pitch be? And similarly, if there are young people in the audience, and I'm sure they are on Zoom, if they said, I want to give part of the next five years to helping that vision you're talking about, Singapore as an epicenter for materialism, what would this young person invest their time in. Simon, you're asking this about Singapore? or Yeah, about Singapore, right? Okay, so I was yeah. a bit brave <laughs> to, yes. to, to say that I this is the Singapore that I would like to actually see, right? You know, uh, Simon, I must say that uh, I'm actually quite proud of some of the things that I'm seeing, huh? uh, be it the social impact discussions in the country, uh, really, uh, people, especially during the COVID-19, I find that people are becoming more caring, trying to find new ways of working. But, but, there is always a but <laughs> in what I'm going to say. Uh, the, the thing is, all these are usually innovations, right? Uh, what I would like to see is that they become standard practice. And, 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 and this means, uh, of course, you know, our youth can... Uh, and, and there's a lot of encouragement for them to be innovative, to find solutions, green solutions, and even, even social impact uh, ways of working. Um, but at the same time, um, if it is to be practiced, then they have to partner, I mean, the, the corporations, and they are not going to be easy. 
I mean, already they're struggling. Huh? They're, they're struggling. What does it mean to be a net zero a carbon, carbon economy? What must we change? How would it impact our, our profits? And so on and so forth. So, so conversation, and this is why I put out the idea. I hope that these lectures will actually make people excited, excited to have conversations about what can be done, how can we do it, and then, and, and uh, my hope again, my hope because I, you know that I work many years outside of Singapore, so my hope, and Singapore has been very uh, involved internationally and regionally as well, but one of my greatest hope is that Singapore, whilst we're doing all this innovation uh, internally, will also do it externally. And there is so much need. I'm, I'm one of those people that have been working on the, 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 the population that's been caught in precarious work for such a long time, the displaced population and so on. And if, you know, we, we are too small to ask, you know, to get, as, at least this is the argument we have made, you know, to get uh, these people into our country and so on. But they are in our neighbourhood. And, how, and we have all the technology that can support their education, their healthcare, you know, uh, partnering with them. So there are all the different ways uh, in ASEAN that we can actually play a much stronger role. And uh, getting that education that uh, we are no longer a little red dot. We actually have got to be a smart powerhouse that is also compassionate. And I hope, and I know that that's what we can be. I have to say, uh, Nodine, I absolutely agree that you have to keep the conversation going. For instance, the discussion on sustainability, climate change, Singapore is now talking about this all the time. Mm -hmm. And young people, when they accost our politicians in conversations and so on, our politicians say they raise questions about climate change, they worry about the environment. Mm -hmm. So it is there, and mm -hmm. this is your new multilateralism. Mm -hmm. It's the ground. Absolutely. People asking. Mm -hmm. That could happen, and it could spread to other areas. Mm -hmm. Could be awareness about public health, mm -hmm. that health, rights to public health, global mm -hmm. health, you know, mm -hmm. and so on. Mm -hmm. Now, we have four minutes left. I want to ask a question, in fact, on your digital commons question, mm -hmm. because this is very important, and you spent a lot of time on cybersecurity. Mm -hmm. uh, you know, the, uh, the UN wants to reclaim the digital commons, and it's very good that you have established high-level cooperation on digital cooperation. There are talks, mm -hmm. and the UN is undertaking these talks. It's important because it may be the only platform that all the players are brought in. Mm -hmm. You know, you can have digital agreements, economy agreements as groupings, but it's never totally inclusive. Mm -hmm. So where can you have a full discussion that everybody is having, mm -hmm. right? Mm -hmm. So I think the UN should keep doing that. Mm -hmm. I don't know what the play is like. I should look into that, mm -hmm. how each player is mm -hmm. uh, pushing. I'm sure a lot of big players want to be the drivers, mm -hmm. equal drivers. Mm -hmm in forming digital mm -hmm. rules. Mm -hmm. But my question is this, do you think the UN should get a G20 summit at the UN headquarters mm -hmm. so that you can discuss some of these things? Mm -hmm. Because in the G20, 
it includes you know, developed countries, developing countries, and most of the biggest mm -hmm. players mm -hmm. are there. Mm -hmm. Well, you know, uh, Hengchi, there, there's going to be uh, uh, actually as part one of the tracks for the uh, Summit of the Future is on the Global Digital Compact, right? Yes. Uh, and this is absolutely uh, critical uh, because a lot, of, as I mentioned, all those issues will be addressed as well. And you will have a regulatory framework that will come up. And the G20 members are part of that discussion as well. Uh, so, so in a sense, uh, what, I mean, the UN is such a universal um, space to, to uh, convene. And uh, in fact, there was already uh, an a high-level advisory board on the, on the digital uh, platform, uh, which the Secretary General organized. And that came up with many of the, of the kind of suggestions as well. And, um, Actually, uh, this would be a place to actually try out the new network multilateralism where you bring in the main players because there's no point mm -hmm. having just the, your, your member states without the key players, right? And I'm so glad that my, the security, uh, cybersecurity team is here. Uh, but, but really, uh, you know, that's one, one issue. It's not the only one but, but uh, is absolutely critical. And I know that Singapore, for example, has been very involved uh, with that 11 norms, the, the, the non-binding yeah. norms, they, 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 they call it. And uh, it is critical because it actually look at, uh, it, they, currently it is voluntary. A lot of the things in the UN happens to be voluntary. But now, I mean, people are looking at it more from the legal framework. And I, and I just feel that uh, there is a possibility. And this is what is good. I mean, the, the, the UN and I know this very well, but it has a lot of weaknesses because it is in transition, but, and it's never going to be perfect. But at the same time, I think the three roles that it plays is just so critical. Basically, it is a guardian of our future, and it brings everybody together. It is a place where small states have the same, not necessarily the same, but at least they are represented, and they can network and create a much greater force. Uh, it is a place to protect the international, the international ethical framework, because without that, we are going to be lost. So a uh, common ethical framework. And then, basically, uh, it is a convener and, mm -hmm. and, and I just feel that, uh, you know, it gives legitimacy and authority for actions that, that are taken. And um, certain things become legal frameworks, they become international law, mm -hmm. and, uh, and we need that. We, we, we kind of need that. So, um, difficult as it is, we are there in the fight. And yes. we are walking, hopefully, along the road of breakthrough and not breakdown. And I hope your digital commons, you know, and your attempts to create digital rules, ro rules of the road will have the same sort of support and success, even ground up from other sectors as climate change has. Mm -hmm. But even with climate change, it is an issue, mm -hmm. but it is already gained a yes, lot of traction. Indeed, indeed. And uh, I think everybody is interested in this, you mm -hmm. know, in cybersecurity, mm -hmm in cyber rules, mm -hmm. and uh, we're trying to form these, mm -hmm. uh, come up with some rules. Mm -hmm. And I think this is where your companies all mm -hmm. can come in. I understand that in the issue of cybersecurity, mm -hmm. you get all these major tech companies, you mm -hmm. know, whether it's Amazon, Microsoft, you know, you name them, mm -hmm. big 
e-commerce companies, mm -hmm. you know, mm -hmm. and uh, they are major retailers and health companies. Mm -hmm. Everyone is very concerned about cybersecurity and protection of data. Absolutely. So they, you have already got them signing on, yes. working. Mm -hmm. And in this new multilateralism, which you emphasize, you know, is UN leading the way with saying that we want to have this discussed, we want the social compact, bring in the leaders, Mm -hmm. But you bring in the companies, mm -hmm. and as uh, what you said, our cybersecurity experts here say, in Singapore, we have to really make people more aware mm -hmm. of the mm -hmm. issue of cybersecurity, the importance of cybersecurity, and you have to have talent, talent, and talent. Absolutely. The people who can actually work this. Mm -hmm. I think, I hope this will grow because this mm -hmm. is really a very important next mm -hmm. And, and, and also, Prof Chan, you know, the thing is, is that this is an area where the young um, are far, far more advanced than many of us. And, 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 I, and I would like to see more women getting more engaged here because I, I realise, you know, that uh, we tend, once we hear cybersecurity, you think it's all about technology. But uh, the Citibank uh, group basically convinced me that no. there's a whole range of skills and jobs available that they need women to be trained in. And I think that this is an, an area that uh, I really uh, would uh, encourage more women uh, to, to get involved with, especially the younger women. Right. Now, um, we've exceeded our time, uh, Nodine, and I really want, on behalf of the audience, and those on online and those in the room to thank you for a very interesting and very um, inspiring presentation because I, it's good for us. You know, we're always with the nitty gritty of the facts, the realities. We have to listen to values. We have to listen to what we should aim for. And I think you've done that greatly very well and uh, the UN is the place that we should go to, we should support because you know sometimes we get the sense that is the UN still relevant and I yes. would say the UN is very relevant mm -hmm. particularly for the standard setting mm -hmm. and for looking at the areas mm -hmm. which beyond peace and security mm -hmm. there are so many areas which impinge on our lives mm -hmm. and uh, I think you've drawn our attention very successfully to this in the last three lectures. So thank you very much. And uh, IPS is really very lucky to have got you to be the 10th SR Nathan Fellow. Thank you, Prof Chan. Thank you very, very much. And thank you all. Thank you all. Thank you, Prof Chan and Dr. Hazel. We will now play a pre-recorded video of IPS Director Janadas Devon's closing remarks. We have come to the close of Nolene's lecture series, Singapore and Multilateral Governance. I would like to thank Nolene for delivering three excellent lectures covering a host of important issues on the future of multilateralism and its impact on Singapore. Nolene's lectures have examined the lessons we have learned from our multilateral past how we can adapt multilateralism amidst moments of transition, and how this ultimately shapes our normative future. I would like to thank everyone else who has been involved in making this semester's SR Nathan Lecture Series a success, 
including each of Nolene's three moderators, as well as Nolene herself, who delivered all three of her lectures with great passion. Our next SR Nathan Fellow is Mr. Patrick Daniel. He will deliver his lectures from February 2022. And the fellow after that, I'm very pleased to announce, will be none other than Professor Wang Gangwu. Thank you all for joining us this evening and have a very good evening. We've come to the end of today's lecture. We would like to hear your views on the event. Please click our link on the Facebook feed to submit your feedback. Thank you all for attending today's lecture. Have a good evening ahead. Thank you.